Hey there, welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your host, RJ Heyman. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. We come to you every other Friday to explore some of the ways in which we see grace and its absence or opposite playing out in the world around us. We're so glad you joined us. Well, 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 here we are. It is the beginning of August, and uh, we are back in the saddle to talk about a number of things. Um, but the first is probably the most pressing issue. I think uh, when someone forwarded this to me, they say, you know, the hard-hitting news from the Wall Street Journal um we are talking about Joanna Sugden's article, Sorry Mom, Your Floss Dancing is Just Embarrassing. It is, a again, a really incredible piece of journalism that profiles the move, the uh, dance move that has uh, swept the globe and the late adopters known as mom and dad and how many children are mortified. Given the rest of what we're talking about today, I figured it would be good to begin with something slightly lighthearted. My favorite uh, parts of this were um, when they interview these the English people and the, the people sort of from across the globe. Uh, Sherith Hancock, a 59-year-old teaching assistant, spent hours practicing her floss before an end-of-the-year event at a school in Liverpool, England. I went home and Googled, how can I learn to floss? And this very patronizing six-year-old in America taught me, she said. She and her colleagues practiced the move in school storage rooms after the final bell and beside the office photocopier. There was a little code between us, Miss Hancock said. You'd say, go on, show us your floss. The school staff surprised uh, students with a mass floss. The children went wild, Miss Hancock said. When she broke out the floss at a wedding earlier this month, however, it did not go over well. Now, there's more to the article, but uh, Sarah, you uh, put this in our orbit. Where did you go with it? Um, so we have a seven-year-old boy, so he, he, that is like the age to floss. Like it was dabbing last year, it's flossing this year. So I will notice that like even dabbing if he's is so just 2017. like... Don't, don't even I talk know, about exactly. dabbing. Don't exactly. bring it up. It's embarrassing. If he's... If he's like bored, like if he's standing in line, I'll he'll just stand there and floss. Like it's like his like kids. It's it's his go to. I'm kind of grateful for <laughs> Can it. Can you explain what um, what it actually is? Because I don't think some so people may you, not know. You kind of swing your hips back and forth, and then you move your arms like in a straight line. So like when your arms go one way, one arm goes behind you, one arm stays in front, and it's and kids do it. And they do it. They can do it really, really fast. Uh-huh. So especially like if you got a seven-year-old boy in your life, ask him to floss as fast as he can, and then do not laugh at him because it's like very serious. Um, we uh, so I'm the uh, den mother for our son's uh, Cub Scout troop, <laughs> and we had to come up. With <sighs> Lord have guns. mercy! <laughs> yeah, rar. I'm third generation den mother. Thank you very much. Um, oh and we had God. to we had to come up with like a, a like you have to do like a cheer as a group. And my son, who tends to have sort of a dominating personality, no surprise, was like, we have to floss. So the pack, which is like this massive group of boys, all has to do your cheer with you. So you have to teach it to them. Okay. So the great thing about Houston is we are like such a diverse city. So in my whole like big group of Cub Scouts, we've got like Muslim families, we've got Asian families, we've got black families, we've got everybody. And 
watching a woman in a hijab flossing <laughs> like a Cub Scout was like the highlight of my year. I was like, this is like the best of Houston happening right now. So anyway, I'm a big fan of the floss. <laughs> I'm picturing it right Good now. And that is that is actually it's ama- it was amazing. Quite like amazing. she went all in. I was like, yeah, sister, let's do this. You know. So anyway, yeah, I love the floss. Do your boys floss, RJ? I feel like your littlest no. one's too little, and your older yeah. ones are too old. I think I, I'm embarrassed. Even I, I'm scared to ask them because I think they shall hurl um, insults and ire upon mine head. Just but, do uh, it, but, like do it in front of them and see what happens. That's what I want to see. Well, I probably will because I, 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 my thought was, you know, as the father of two teenage boys, I do feel as if it is my God-given right and responsibility to embarrass them as much as I possibly can. Uh, my wife and I tried to send them really awful, you know, bitmages, uh, you know, at all times, especially when my oldest son is with his girlfriend, you know, <laughs> just send really embarrassing text messages. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, kids, kid, the best thing about kids is making fun of them. I got to mm. say, and I think it's really good for them too, mm-hmm. because speaking as a, uh, a person who formerly and still does take himself way too seriously, a little gentle ribbing goes a long way. And being able to laugh at yourself, I think, is a, is a valuable life skill. Um, and I say that as I'm, you may hear them right now, my, my oldest and three of his friends, three of his nerd friends are um, <laughs> in my living room smashing. Do you know what smashing is? No. It's, it's playing Super Smash Brothers, but it's been elevated to such a degree that it's now simply smashing uh-huh so they're okay. out there and that's what they do while my 13 year old is upstairs playing Fortnite online with his friends so this, there's plenty there's a whole fertile ground fertile this ground is a ripe opportunity fun. my friend for you to walk in that room and break and out your floss, floss. <laughs> i'm just saying just do it i think the I'll be, the I'll be you right know back. when I'll the spirit right moves uh it it, it moves right. with grace and truth the exactly. i have to rj yeah. i have to pay you a compliment i think i've told you this in private before but um you were you and Jamie were some of the first people we knew to ha- to really be in the active role of raising children and uh when we were youth ministers together we were we we soon more and more people had kids and so many of them that were really kind of sincere christians and meant very well took it so it was hyper intentional and everything was like a duty you know, it felt like this heavy weight he and said duty. you could kind of see the weariness on their face. And it didn't mean that you guys weren't exhausted too, but like final, we, when, when, when my wife and I wanted to, we were thinking about having children, like we got to go spend time with RJ and Jamie because they seem to get a kick out of their children. It's not just duty for them, like, mm-hmm. and everyone else. And so thank you for that. I'm sure your children don't feel the same way, but when you say that the best part of having kids is laughing at them, I tend to agree that that is a big, I, I need that reminder today as I'm, you know, forcibly exiled one of our children from the room. Dude, there's, there's nothing more hilarious than a good temper tantrum, <laughs> you know? But this is actually a perfect lead into <laughs> children as being um, both wonderful and joyful and also little sin, sinful uh, factories of uh, discontent and uh, temper tantrums. Um, 
this is from Seth Stevens Davidowitz, and it was in the Guardian, I believe, and it got circulated around. It's it's quite a uh, piece of work called "Everybody Lies: How Google Search Reveals Our Deepest Secrets." I'm going to read some of it, and then I'll sort of po- ask you guys what you think of this kind of harrowing um, article. That I think if uh, it doesn't tell the whole truth, but it does tell part of the truth. Um, it begins by talking about by asking, how can we learn what our fellow humans are really thinking and doing? The answer seems to be big data. Certain online sources get people to admit things they would not admit anywhere else. They serve as a digital truth serum, and they sort of go through, he goes through all the the, um, ways in which uh, online things are able to distance you from lying about yourself. Um, The power in Google data, which is public data, is that people tell the giant search engine things they might not tell anyone else. Google was invented so that people could learn about the world, not so researchers could learn about people. But it turns out the trails we leave as we seek knowledge on the internet are tremendously revealing. Now he goes on to talk about this in terms of uh, sexuality, mainly, both in sort of uh, orientation as well as kind of sexual proclivities, the questions people ask in relationships, but also um, in terms of uh, racism and sexism, and basically everything that is cloaked in shame in our culture, um, Google search reveals for what we really think about it. And um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to do my best to focus on two things. First of all, he talks about a speech that President Obama gave about um, the responsible the responsibility of all Americans of every faith to reject discrimination is a famous speech um, and after he uh, this sort of uh, media said that this was the most successful speech and everyone was so moved by it and it was the watershed moment but Google search told a different story searches calling Muslims quote terrorists bad violent and evil doubled during and shortly after the speech. Obama asked Americans to, quote, not forget that freedom is more powerful than fear, yet searches for, quote-unquote, kill Muslims tripled during his speech. In fact, just about every negative search you could think to test regarding Muslims shot up during and after Obama's speech, and just about every positive search we could think of to test declined. In other words, Obama seemed to say all the right things, but new data from the Internet offering digital truth serums suggested that the speech actually backfired in its main goal. Instead of calming the angry mob as everyone thought he was doing, the internet data tells us that Obama actually inflamed it. Sometimes we need internet data to correct our instinct to pat ourselves on the back. And um, so that's sort of this incredible example of the law increasing the trespass or, you know, something going on, people reacting majorly to feeling lectured. Um, But then it goes on sort of towards the end. He says, I can't pretend there isn't a darkness in some of this data. It has revealed widespread animus against Muslims and African Americans. This is not cheery stuff. If people consistently tell us what they think we want to hear, we will generally be told things that are more comforting than the truth. Digital truth serum, on average, will show us that the world is worse than we have thought. Now, you and uh, we on this show like to do the sort of hashtag low anthropology stuff, and that is where my mind goes with this in a very uncomfortable way. But I want to, for my own sanity here, um, because there's a lot of ways to nitpick what his results. Um, but the article closed with a little interchange with him, asking him what he's learned. And it's a long article. They asked uh, Seth, does it change your view of human nature? Are we darker and stranger creatures than you realized? He said, yeah, 
I think I had a dark view of human nature to begin with, and I think it's gotten even darker. I think the degree to which people are self-absorbed is pretty shocking. Now, here's the really fascinating thing. He said, when Trump became president, all my friends said how anxious they were, that they couldn't sleep because they're so concerned about immigrants and the Muslim ban. But from the data, you can see that in the liberal parts of the country, there wasn't a rise in anxiety when Trump was elected. When people were waking up at 3 a.m. in a cold sweat, their searches were about their job, their health, their relationship. They're not concerned about the Muslim ban or global warming. Also, people are more interested in sex than I thought they were. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's so much there. I think this is one thing we always talk about, that we want to think that we're these good people concerned about global causes, but what people really are thinking about. And on Sunday morning where we the rubber hits the road is people are wondering about, does anyone love me? And how do mm-hmm. I make this relationship work? And it's not all bad. It's just how we are. But I want to cede the floor to you guys. Where did you, what what's jumped out to you? So I heard this guy interviewed, um, which is part of the reason I went and was looking at this article, um, because he talked about how Um, the most popular hashtag on social media that starts with my husband is, is my husband is the best, but the most popular Google search or Google searches that begin with my husband is, are my husband is a jerk. My husband is an asshole. My husband is psycho. And so what we project to the world is so different from Google, right? But the question that comes to my mind is what, so then what purpose is Google serving, right? It's not like we've had Google for hundreds of years. We've had Google for, you know, 15 or whatever. I still remember Ask Jeeves, for the record, and <laughs> used to ask Jeeves questions. But but Google, what what is it that we're turning to it for? Because it's right, it's obviously more than just information. So... I pulled up my own Google search because I because I'm fascinated. I was like, what you know, what have I searched for today, you know, or today, probably today and yesterday. So it's my kids swim school to arrange for her to take swim lessons, which I definitely did at my job. Um, how many calories are in the Starbucks sous vide eggs? Because I was going to get those for lunch and I'm neurotic and vain. Um, the startup church planning podcast because I keep looking it up because it's awesome. And then my husband's church, which I'm at every day. Why am I Googling? You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, it's just, it, it's it's fascinating to me. It's like, it's for more, it's, it's it does say so much about us, but what does it say? And also what, what did people do at three o'clock in the morning 50 years ago when they woke up and they were worried about death? What did they do? I, I'm fascinated by this. It reminded me a lot of, of what I think you said this first, Dave, or I heard you say this first, you know, the discrepancy between our Facebook selves and our search history selves. And I've used that in sermons before to great effect. Like there's a, there's an audible gasp, you know, when you talk about um, people's search history selves because uh, the fear that that might be exposed and the truth it would tell about uh, who you are. Um, It also, it dovetails nicely. I'm working on a little piece for the website, which we'll see if it goes up, but um, this we'll week's uh, episode, we'll see. This week's episode of This American Life, um, there's a great, it's called Crime Scene, and one of the little um, vignettes is a 12-minute thing about a guy in California who owns a crime scene cleanup business, uh, and he's hilarious. He's from Santa Cruz, but he has an affected Southern accent because he feels like it's good for business and it's very comforting to people. And so the producer asks him, 
you know, what have you learned in all these years you've been showing up at crime, crime scenes and, and doing this awful work, clean, cleaning up blood and gore. And it's, it's the things he's seen is crazy. And he says without missing a beat, that he goes, people are dirt bags. They're, I thought people were normal. I had, and I can, I can do Southern because it's not real for him and it won't be real for me. Right. Uh, he says, I used to think people were normal, but they're not. In fact, normal is the dirt bagginess. You know, p- people 80, 20 dirt bags. Like I had no idea. <laughs> You know, and so now he says he just comes home every day, takes a long hot shower, and just waits for his uh, girlfriend to get home or death. He said, either my girlfriend or death, either one is fine. You know, and he's <laughs> hilarious, and it's and it's dark, but it's true that when you get mm-hmm. behind the lives of people, yourself included, there's a lot of dirt baggery out there, mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of sin, a lot of brokenness. But on the flip side of that, what I also say is I don't think it's actually possible to genuinely love people, including yourself, until you know what they're actually like. And that uh, I spend, I have, I still do, you know, just when you thought your anthropology was low enough, you know, something else happens. But I spent a, a good part of my life sort of probably artificially loving people and artificially loving me because I was loving their best selves or who I wished they were, who I thought they were. But I think you can only actually love them and receive love uh, when you're exposed, you know, when uh, when you see who someone actually, who sees someone actually is. And of course, that's, you know, that's grace. That's God's one-way love for us as we actually are when he sees every little thing we do, want, think, say. Um, so there's, there, there, there's, there is something helpful about having the mask pulled back. It actually, at the end of the day, it's a, I think it's a good, it's a scary thing but it's a very good thing too, because it opens the door to love. And I mean, that's what we, uh, uh, this is, that's where God is, um, uh, you know, that the second that exposure happens, God is right there. And uh, we, we say this a lot, but um, I, I think that you were actually in the post that you were working on. I saw that this idea that, you know, as long as sin remains imaginary or hypothetical or abstract, so does mercy. So does mm. grace. And last week, um, Jacob Smith had forwarded me this article that I put in the weekend column of, you know, all of these gang members in El Salvador for this MS-13 gang, which is extremely violent gang. They're all being converted in jail, and then they're remaining there. It's not just a jail time thing. They're they're remaining Christians outside the walls, and it's this uh, kind of incredible movement. And um, there are people that are suspicious, and there are people that, of course, are right to have a little pause. But there's... Um, it, it's this example, one after another, of all these guys with face tattoos that have really been through some things and have really done some awful things, talking like this is the only way out for me, and this is God is met me. Um, I cannot pretend that I wasn't a part of this gang. I can't pretend that I didn't do the things that were involved in the initiation of this gang, and that you know, as long as sin remains imaginary, so does redemption. And um, that's not to say God's handcuffed in any way by our uh, misgivings or our, uh, you know, the way we obfuscate. But it, it does mean that there is something very powerful that happens when the search history is revealed. I want to get to the example that we, we, we bring up at the end. But before we do, big data is such a great lead into this incredible column from Ross Douthat in the New York Times. It's called, Oh, the Humanities. 
And it's about the new data that's come out that confirms that technocracy uh, is crushing the life out of humanism or the humanities, that the humanities on college campuses are in really bad shape. And he tells a story. It's all from Alan Jacobs' new book, actually. Alan Jacobs, who spoke at our conference this past year. Uh, This incredible story from the spring of 1946, the poet W.H. Auden goes to Harvard to read a poem entitled Under Which Lyre, meaning the the instrument, which envisioned a post-war world in which public life would be dominated by a renewed contest between the motley humanists and the efficient technocrats, uh, the aesthetes and poets and philosophers and theologians versus the managers, scientists, financiers, and bureaucrats. And he talks about the spirit of Apollo, which is the spirit of science and and sort of managerial uh, life. He says, when he occupies a college, truth is replaced by capital useful knowledge he pays particular attention to commercial thought public relations hygiene sport that in fact the spirit of truth replaced by useful knowledge rules today everywhere not just in washington and silicon valley but in almost all of academia itself and uh, he, he, the, he refers to new analysis of the steepening decline in the share of college students majoring in English, philosophy, religion, and history. Um, that The years since the Great Recession, 2008, have been brutal for almost every major in the humanities. They've been bad for social science fields that most closely resemble the humanistic ones, sociology, anthropology, international relations, political science. Meanwhile, the sciences, the engineering, have gained at the expense of humanism. STEM is what everyone's all about. He says this is driven by economic concerns, but also, um, some would say, due to the humanists themselves, who have become overly politicized and are marching lockstep to the left and pursuing postmodernist obscuritanism in their scholarship and prose, meaning they've gotten really highfalutin and almost impossible to understand. But here's where it gets, I think, like uh, really trenchant for us. In a technocratic culture, eager for quote-unquote useful knowledge and technical mastery and increasingly indifferent to memory and allergic to tradition, the poet and the novelist and the theologian struggle to find an official justification for their arts. And both the turn towards radical politics and the turn toward high theory are attempts by those in the humanities to supply that justification, to rebrand themselves as the seat of social justice and a font of political reform, or to assume a pseudoscientific mantle that lets academics claim to be interrogating literature with the rigor and precision of a lab tech doing dissection. At the moment, both these efforts look like failed attempts. And he says, the last time there was a revival in the humanities, which was with the post-war time, we had the benefit of forces that are no longer with us. For example, there was a stronger religious element in mid-century culture, which rooted mid-century humanism in a metaphysical understanding of human life, an understanding that both ennobled acts of artistic creation and justified a strong interest in the human person's interiority, uh, their actual person, as opposed to just their brain chemistry or social role. Duthat closes by saying that a hopeful roadmap to the humanities recovery might include variations on these older themes, not just a religious re-examination, but a regained sense of history as a repository of wisdom and example, rather than just a litany of crimes and wrong think, and a cultural recoil from the tyranny of the digital and the virtual and the very online. And he he ends, he says, Auden's poem closes with the comic, but not really, advice for people in the humanities. This is Auden saying, Thou shalt not sit with statisticians, nor commit a social science. 
Thou shalt not be on friendly terms with guys and advertising firms. If thou must choose between the chances, choose the odd. Read the New Yorker, trust in God. And then he says, <laughs> imagine a world, an intellectual climate where that last piece of advice doesn't seem like a contradiction in terms. And you've imagined mm-hmm. the beginnings of humanism's revival. May we live to see the day. That's a lot of reading. Where did you guys go with this? It reminded me of the talk you gave at the Mockingbird New York City conference about losing our sense of smell, which I thought was just so brilliant. And and what he's basically saying is that whether it is the uh, technological side of things or, or the humanities uh, in our current context, everything has become so impersonal. Like he said, so impersonal has nothing to do with who you actually are as a, as a person, but rather with effectiveness and, and social movements and, and, and larger things. And I was just, I was struck when he talked about useful knowledge, because to my way of thinking, there is no more useful knowledge in human existence than understanding yourself and by extension, understanding other people and understanding how to be in relationship with other people. You know, that there could be no more valuable college course than, um, you know, how to, be, how to be married, how to be a parent, you know, how to be in relationship with other people. And people are going to have differing opinions about those things. And I get that, you know, in our sort of postmodern moment. But it is, uh, it is striking that um, the very thing that, you know, do that is saying has been you know, castigated as unuseful, actually is the most useful thing. The most useful thing you could ever possibly understand or know is yourself and other people and how to be in productive relationship with other people, which is very difficult um, and takes a lifetime to sort of, you know, figure out, uh, but is also the most worthwhile thing we could possibly know. I, well, so this whole piece made me think of, you know, it was uh, at Ole Miss and I was a Southern Studies major and it's an amazing, amazing department. And um, I can't, I just can't love it enough. I feel like still because I learned so much about history, so much about literature, which meant I learned a lot about the human condition. I learned a mm. lot about sin and redemption and, you know, the kind of stuff we were reading while we were probably reading it through a political lens, wasn't exactly political. Does that make sense? And when it was written, which was incredibly helpful because it taught me about subtlety in writing, which is, um, you know, we always talk about here about being uh, descriptive instead of prescriptive. And I think that that was like base level. I began to learn that there and how helpful that was in trying that, to- That's where you learned how to be subtle, Sarah? Yeah. That, was, that was your- uh, Yeah, gosh, I was, tell us. I was 18. <laughs> Trust me, my parents did not emphasize subtle and young women. So, and I am thankful for that. Um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a, just such an incredible experience. But so I was thinking, I've been thinking about that department. I was thinking about how like, and I'm using air quotes here, but useless, like some of the, the graduate, uh, theses, thesi, theses. Mm -hmm. Am I saying which one is it, guys? Yeah, were, whatever. When I was an undergraduate, because I was kind of obsessed with these people who were like literally going to get, you know, their master's in this. Like I remember one girl was writing about NASCAR culture, right? Like, what? What You you know what I mean? But it was like, I mean, they're so, sure, it's cars, but it's also like, you know, all these white people who like show up and then, you know, sit in the middle. I don't know if you've been to NASCAR, but they, they camp out together and like cars race around them at really high speeds. And, you know, it's 
allegedly a lot of fun. Like, I mean, not useful and yet incredibly, probably insightful given where we are today politically, right? But she, I remember when she did it, people are like, she's crazy. You know, I mean, there's a guy who wrote about pot liquor, which neither of you probably know what that is. But I mean, there was some interesting. I've seen the life of Chef's Life. I've, I've watched that show. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So anyway, it's that stuff becomes incredibly helpful later in this interesting way. The other thing I think about uh, when we talk about the loss of humanities is because yes, there's a loss, but like we, I, I am convinced that humanity will always make up for it someplace else because we're still having to process internally what's happening in us. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's on Instagram, I think. Our own Mm. Stephanie Phillips wrote a piece, a really fantastic piece that I cannot recommend enough um, on the site called My (laughs) Lifestyle Brand Isn't Pretty, but it's amazing. Amazing. And she writes about these women who have this whole, I mean, I'm not sure if they're the W.H. Auden of, you know, 2018. (laughs) They're not. But but there's this like this internal and it's not most of it's not super political, but it's this internal sort of process that's like telling people how to get through things, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and, you know, spoiler alert, like none of it helps. Um, <laughs> so, which is the, you know, the interesting thing that Stephanie points out, but anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's sad though, right? It's sad to read this stuff that, that the humanities are less funded and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it to be, I, 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 I rewrote, something about uh, underachieving boys and uh, the masks that men wear for the new issue of The Mockingbird, the deja vu issue. And one of the throwaway lines that I uh, put in there that wasn't in there before was I said, if you spot a male English major in the wild today as an undergraduate, and I say this having worked very closely with undergraduates for almost 15 years now, if you spot one today, you've, you've spotted something very rare. Like that that's just, mm. and I was worried that maybe I was overdoing it, but one of our interns who's proofing it is a, just finished, uh, he graduated from the UVA as an English major, and he thought it was the best part of the article because he couldn't agree more, um, that no guys are going into the humanities anymore, and less women too. But it's so underfunded. We, we're so, it, the technocracy, the big data, we think um, things aren't, important unless they can be mastered unless there's a sort of a a right wrong an answer and a wrong answer and there's you know Bill Derezowitz talked about this at our conference a couple of years ago in a brilliant talk about how even the humanities that are there have been so co-opted by scientism and by that meaning that we're only interested in them as so far as uh, they can sort of confirm our um, our pre-existing notions or that they can become another piece in our toolkit towards success and that everything's been co-opted by the cult of productivity and the law and in which any kind of open-ended questioning or spiritual life to say nothing like any kind of even acknowledgement of spiritual life as being a huge component of where people are as Instagram as you know, busy Phillips uh, Instagram stories I watch them all the time they're amazing because she's talking about actual life <laughs> she's not right. talking about uh, abstract categories and so um, this is where you know we've lost something and I don't want to blame people who aren't in the humanities anymore because I see the tremendous pressure people are under to to not take well, those classes but it makes me sad it breaks my heart because it, I think it's the only thing worth doing 
you know. Sure. But I, the other thing I would say to that is I think this says so much about where our seminaries are. And, I, you know, I use that as a denominational specific thing, you know, because, I mean, there's a seminary in the Episcopal Church that shall remain nameless who, like, you know, 10 years ago was like every one of our classes has to have a social justice component. Like that was a thing at the seminary. Every single class had to have a social justice component. What does that say? Like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like, first of all, everyone's exhausted by the time they finish seminary. Second of all, they're ill-prepared to run a vestry meeting. Third of all, have they prayed? I mean, I'm just like, I see both sides. This part of me also sees the frustration that people probably have when they look at the humanities because sort of like yeah you know, I'd rather just take a hard science if that's what it's gonna right, be right then like deal with like you having to politicize something that could be could offer me consolation or at a, at a minimum loveliness you know what I mean it brings to mind a little bit I don't know if I've said this before on the podcast but something really striking Martin Luther said that I read in Stephen Paulson's amazing little book um Luther for Armchair Theologians, where he said that the religions that were closest to Christianity were not um, kind of Judaism and Islam, but actually animism, that people who worshipped uh, the water, the rocks, the sun, the, that they were closer because at least they located God in the real world and not in their projection or philosophy or imagination or um, abstraction, you know, and I think there's something powerful about that, that if you want to find God, you're going to find him in reality. You know, you were talking about those Instagram stories. Like, that's why it's powerful, because she's talking about reality and not projection, not ideas. And we always want to elevate God and try to find God in a higher place than he actually is. You know, he who walked among us, who is who is intimately engaged in the details of our everyday life. Um, that it's scary to think about him, uh, finding him there, but that's where he is. You know, that's where God is. Um, so we shouldn't look sort of out and up, but but down and in. Well, that's, gosh, <laughs> that seems like a perfect lead into our final thing, which was the Facebook post from Garrison Keeler of all people, who, as people know, is sort of... Uh, retired and let go and has been in all sorts of trouble with the way he's treated women in the past. And he posted a sort of a bleary-eyed uh, picture of him on Facebook, posted something the other day that is just, um, I, I found very moving. Uh, he, he writes that, he said, I wept in church this morning, sat in my pew and wept big tears, breaking several decades of dry-eyed Christianity and in an Episcopal church. It was a healing service, and after the sermon, the clergy and the deacon stood in a line across from the front of the church, and people were invited to come forward for prayers of healing. Some old, some young, came up to a clergy person. The two of them joined hands, and the supplicant leaned forward and whispered, and the clergy person prayed for him or her. These encounters took several minutes. There was no hurry. It was so moving, the visible body of Christ offering prayerful attention to individuals who needed it. And I wept, so I couldn't even sing the healing hymn. Take my hand, precious Lord. A steady stream of people. And then I joined them and I went to a black lady deacon who had took my hands and I whispered that I have too much anger about a wrong done to me and I feel crippled by anger. And she prayed in a soft Caribbean voice, a long prayer, as I stood there trembling. And then the hymn, It is well with my soul, which I love, and another with the chorus, He will raise them up, He will raise them up in the last day. And all around me, Episcopalians, white, Black, gay, straight, 
holding their hands in the air for faith in the blessed resurrection. Anglicans being charismatic. I grew up in a cold fundamentalist sect in which doctrinal purity was the whole emphasis. There was no laying on of hands, only wary sidelong glances. This is a miraculous church, St. Michael's on 99th in Amsterdam. I would move to New York just to attend there. And besides all of that, I wrote four limericks during the sermon, which was inaudible. Then he includes two of the limericks. I'm going to read one now, and I'll read the second one at the end. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. I am weak and willful and bored. I've abandoned your ways, but I kneel in your praise. Bless my pen and my laptop, my sword. I mean, I felt that that was real, real church, not an idea, not a theology. It seemed like God was there with these people uh, who um, were hurting. And uh, the tears came um, as uh, just by, by standing there. And in, in there's, it's not hurried. It's full of prayer. It's full of all sorts of people. And um, in that moment, it seems like he is able to maybe not let go of his anger, but to confess it, to reveal it to another person, especially this strange lady who he'd never met before, and to be prayed for, and to sort of be almost washed in uh, this, uh, in, in God's presence, I found that to be a deeply moving example of uh, of redemption. Maybe too strong a word, but simply God's uh, spirit in, at work in the lives of a, of, of a real person in time, uh, dealing with real problems. Um, I don't know, I, Sarah. I don't have the attachment to Garrison Keillor that I know you grew up with, um, but I do. Um, I do have followed a little, the news a little bit, um, so it was kind of bowled over that he would put this out there. He would use whatever platform he's got left to, to say this. Is um, I don't know. It, it touched me. I'm gonna try to talk about this without crying. Um, I. Uh... Yeah, I, Garrison Keillor just means a tremendous amount to me. And um, I see him almost as a fatherly figure. Um, you know, Anne Lamont says that sometimes we find parents in other people. And um, Garrison Keillor is actually a lot like my dad, too. And so, um, a, you know, a writer, a thoughtful guy, um, someone who studied English in college. <laughs> um so when I, you know, when I started the discernment process, and I think I've told this story here before and was asked uh, in the all you have to go through all these, you know, all this questioning who my favorite preacher was, who my favorite theologian was, everyone had these great answers of these like, old school, you know, whoever. And I said, Garrison Keillor, um, because he's that important to me. The work he did on the writer's almanac is so important. And it is like, literally the thing about the writer's almanac, which if you don't know it, they put out a poem every day. They give you all this history about who the writer of it is. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, he does these compilations of poetry that, um, make you want to read poetry, you know, I mean, it's just so powerful. And it's, it's all been pulled off the internet. Like it's gone. Like his mm. life's work has just been like, it does not exist. That is what has happened to him in the fallout from his sin. And so my prayer, when I read this, sorry, is that the church can respond to him with a level of mercy that Jesus responds to him with in this moment. And obviously responded very powerfully and palpably to him in this moment. My prayer is that the church and whether that is St. Michael's or that is another church, but that the church can, can 
meet him with the same level of compassion and consolation and mercy that Jesus has met him with. So that's all I can say about this. I'm so glad he went to this church and he had this experience and he um, felt uh, sort of released and forgiven and healed in a way that he needed. Part of me wishes he hadn't written about it. Oh, you know, that he hadn't put it on Facebook. You know, did, did, um, it's, it's hope, it's, it's helpful and hopeful to hear that he experienced this. And at the same time, being a writer, being the public figure that he was for so long, it must be very difficult for him to no longer be in the spotlight, but maybe be better if he wasn't. Maybe be better if he had just had this experience and put it in a journal or, saved it for a book that he writes later about this time in his life or something like that. Um, yeah, just the form in which he posted it. And I didn't think about this till just now, you know, when I first started, I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. But before you started talking, Sarah, I was like, maybe he just needs to go away for a little while, you know, for his own sake. But I mean, is that unmerciful? I don't, I don't know. I don't think Maybe that's unmerciful. I mean, I think I totally understand what you're saying. And I, I think that's not bad advice either. I mean, I think Jesus is doing something in the life of Garrison Keillor. And I think he processed that out loud. And whether or not that was a good idea is up to the hands in heaven. But I think, um, you know, when God does something like this in our lives, I think so often we 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 either have experiences like this or we have experiences like I was in my car today and it's like 180 degrees in Houston right now, which makes me mad all the time at everything. And I was like, I'm just going to turn on I'm just going to turn on some of my, you know, music I like that puts me in a good mood and think about the Lord. And like I did that and was in a better place. And I was like, I'm such a good Christian. And what I realized in that moment is <laughs> that you say it with that accent. I do. That's literally the accent that happens. So I take it really that's I take it really seriously when it happens. What I realized in that moment is whether it's God and all his mercy coming to Garrison Keillor in this way or God coming to me in the car, it's the same thing, right? I didn't do anything, right? I no. may have felt like I did something, but I didn't do anything. It's just God like slamming into us. And I think sometimes I totally agree, RJ. The best thing we can do is just like be in that and not have to like say it out loud. I don't know. Or process it. I feel for him as a writer, though. I mean, I think there is that, know. you know, processing thing out loud and, and fame. Sure. I mean, you're totally right. There's tons of ego there, you know. So I mean, I, I know a couple of guys who are, you know, who uh, are used to being in the spotlight. And I think part of their recovery from similar incidents was just not being right, right. for a while and how incredibly hard that was. Um and not to bring Jesus into it, but you know what he does. What did he say? You know, when you when you um, is it you when you give thanks, go into your closet, or when you pray, you know, pray in secret. Mm -hmm. You know, and your heavenly Father who sees in secret, and not knowing that your left hand. You know, um, yeah, it's got. It, I don't know. I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be too judged. Like I said, I'm so glad that he had this experience, and I, I trust a hundred percent that it's genuine. And part of me wishes that he'd kept it to himself for a little while longer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I feel like I don't know, I can't say, of course I can't say what this means in the life of Garrison Keillor or the life of the people, the women whose maybe, I don't know, whose careers he, he, he 
he ruined or what what have you. That's all speculative. It's speculative what even happened. But I know that when I read it about it, it was touching to me. And it was mm. evidence at a time and a day when I needed to hear that God is not just an idea uh, or a theology, but God actually meets sinners like me um, in unexpected places. Yes, and even in the church. I mean, like, because I, I don't, yeah. I don't really think much of the church, you know, universal. I, if that can make even even a sense, so. Whatever it means for a garrison and the cost he might be paying for it, um, I know that for where I'm sitting at, I, I it hit me between the eyes in a sweet way to remind me that God um, is ever present, especially in these times when we think He's not, or when we come to the end of our rope, or when we finally, when He finally is able to. Um, speak to this strange vessel of a woman and pray with her. Uh, and the final, I mean, I just want to end by this amazing other uh, uh, limerick that he wrote. I say the prayer of contrition and see my pernicious condition. And then in an inst, and am cleansed, at least rinsed, a sinner but a newer addition. I, uh, that's, is that the so hope good. for all of us? Um, <laughs> today so good and um, it reminds me so much of the Spurgeon quote where he says what is it uh I kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages you know <laughs> anyway wow just reminds <laughs> me of that well that's all we got for today I do want to say that I have now held the proof of the deja vu issue in my hands and it is beautiful i cannot wait for people to see it but leafing through it now while plenty of voices are missing and plenty of wonderful things we've done are missing i realize that it's about as close to a climbing on point a ramping on point a summary and a access point a, a, an introduction to mockingbird and what we're all about as we've produced it's all these different voices coming together with humor and with heart to say something something about uh, the nature of who uh, who we are and who God is that uh, with I think it, that maybe comes close to uh, Auden's thing about reading the New Yorker and trusting in God I mean maybe in my uh, wildest fantasy that that could be something that we achieve here but the, if people don't have a subscription I do encourage you to do that because it's, it's shipping bef- right after this episode airs and Sarah you've got a wonderful thing in there and I, I'm very happy with what I've got. And Ethan has done just a phenomenal job. It's, it's basically, I can't imagine a more beautiful product uh, putting together. So, mm. Anyway, I commend that to you. And until we meet again, uh, good luck on the first day of school, everybody. And um, Can't wait. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, RJ. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Hey.